I'm Kimberly C. Palm. As I travel throughout each state, I realize that death is just a moment. It is how we live until that moment that matters. Finding connection with friends, family, and complete strangers. Journey with me. This is the Live Well, Die Well Tour. Well, today I'm very happy to introduce Kathleen Valley Stein to you, who I'm presently reading her book, Loving Choices, Peaceful Passing, Why My Family Chose Hospice. Welcome. Thank you. I'm on this chapter in your book that sort of is tugging at my heart, even as I hear your voice talking about um, and getting ready to talk about, you know, what you and your family went through. But it was a, you, you portrayed a scene where your mother was going into your father's hospital room and, and she usually went to a chair normally, but this time she went to the bedside of your father and your father leaned dump and she was talking about a physician coming that he was going to talk about this word called in service called hospice. And it stuck out to me because it wasn't part of her routine. And I wanted to begin with, were you there? And how, how, how was that um, when you heard your mom for the first time talk about hospice, knowing that your father was in, um, because people get hospice so late, was in, your, was in his end of life um, tell me how you felt. Well, I was impressed. I, I was really pleased because she had just not taken the lead in anything having to do with his care. She relied on my sister and me to talk with the doctors, to um, make decisions for him. She had always been subservient to him. She was a mid-century woman uh, and she just uh, he was the boss he made the decisions she was not the decision maker so I had asked her the evening before if I could talk to Dr. Archer about hospice and she said okay so I that's why I initiated that conversation with him and uh, he did. He never did bring up hospice. I knew about the hospice benefit because of a job I had as a an advocate for seniors on Medicare. So, and I, I just he just didn't want to bring it up. So when I finally said we think it might be time for hospice, he agreed right away. And I said we need help talking to Dad about this because I had not spoken to my dad about this. And at that point, he said, uh, doesn't your dad know he's dying? Which really was annoying to me because he knew and he wouldn't. And, and, and as you know, in the field, doctors are pretty um, reluctant to bring it up. And so uh, then I went back to mom that evening after I talked to him. And we discussed it over dinner at the retirement community. And she was okay with that that we talk with dad and that Dr. Archer was going to come and help us talk to dad. And she said, we need to tell him in advance. We have to tell him Archer's coming. That was the first time she had injected a plan or an idea or something that, need to be, that needed to be done. So that's why I was impressed with her. When we walked in the room, she just marched over to that bed and looked him in the eye and said, Archer's coming at five o'clock to talk about hospice. 
And I'm so glad she did that. And for me, that was a moment between my parents that was really special to me because of her determination. And she was advocating for him and looking out for him. And it was, and it was also very touching. I was there that evening for the conversation. And she again retreated back and let me do it. You know, um, what you and I have in common is that we wrote our books 18, 20 years after our, uh, your father passed away, after Rob passed away um, in 2000, the same year. Um, different circumstances, but tell me why, I know why it took me so long, um, but we're here to talk about you. Why, why do you feel it took so long to share your story? Well, it took me a long time to write the book. Many, it took about oh, 15 okay. years. I started writing the book about three years after he died, but there were a lot of fits and starts. I'd leave it alone for a while. I'd do a little research for a while. And then um, I just, I kind of got to a tipping point and I just got dedicated to it. So the last couple of years before it was published, I was working on it all the time and thinking about it all the time. Well, do you feel like it helped your grief process to start writing about this? That's interesting because I, I did not start writing the book until, you know, almost, 20, you know, 18 years later. Um, how was it um, writing it throughout the years and taking 15 years to tell your story? Well, it, it helped it helped me to craft what happened to me into a story. I wanted it to be interesting to people. I wanted people to wonder what's next. I wanted a good story. And, and as I was working on it, I realized this is really interesting with two estranged children, the loving letter that my brother wrote, the pastor, mm. a man who only went to church when his kids got married, talking for more than an hour to a pastor and how important he became to our family. And that was provided by hospice. Mm. So as I was finally getting my procrastination out of the way, I decided it was worthy of a story. And then the other reason was to let other people know you can do this because I talked to people. Well, first they think hospice is giving up and then they think they couldn't possibly take care of a person who's dying and they can. Mm -hmm. And it's worth, it's worth the trepidation. It's worth the fear of every time you walk in, what's he going to look like? Is he going to be worse? I overcame those fears and it turned out to be a beautiful relationship. And I want to share that story with people who are thinking, oh, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know how to do it. Well, here's, here's what it is and here's how we did it. Mm, I'm so glad you did because hospice has meant something to me that I can't hardly put into words. Um, so... The interesting thing is that you and I, we have a similar, not similar background, but we have uh, a background um, of where it put us in a way that we did know about hospice and the hospice benefit. So let's start off. Tell us a little bit about how your background and, and how you came to even mention hospice because you are exactly right. Everyone is scared of the H word and the D word. And, and what I... 
I, th- I think we're dying every day. So how do we have a, a personal relationship, a friendship with our mortality to live more boldly um, today? So tell us a little bit about your background because you, you, you were working in the aging field. And, um, and I think that really opened the door to what occurred with your father and your family. Well, I was manager of the Health Insurance Counseling and Advocacy Program, which is a very long name. <laughs> uh, it was, it's, it's, was uh, administered through the California Department of Aging. And I was the manager for Los Angeles County, which was the largest high cap unit. And I trained volunteer counselors to go out into the community, into senior centers, and help people with their Medicare bills explain to them what HMOs are, what Medicare supplemental insurance is, long-term care insurance, just the whole the whole uh, broad range of services through Medicare. And when I would counsel people about the hospice benefit, I would talk it up. Oh, it's really good. They pay for your pharmaceuticals. A lot of, a lot of right. stuff is free. And they go, no, no, we're not. That's giving up. We don't, we don't think that they're dying. And after they had just described somebody who was very desperately ill. Mm. So I knew what the hospice benefit was, and I knew that people didn't want to access it. And then when my dad said to me when we were alone, I don't want to live like this anymore. I was unable to bring up hospice to my own father when he was desperately ill. He told me, and I know he picked me, he had five kids. He picked me to say that too. And I I wasn't able to say, dad, well, maybe we should talk about hospice. I could not bring myself to say those words. And then he ended up going through three weeks of radiation. And that was what brought him to almost, he couldn't eat or drink. Well, tell me about that experience. And, And now looking behind you, why do you feel you struggled without without because you you were very much aware of the benefit you 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 were advocating that for other people i mean was what was happening why was it so hard for you do you, have you have you investigated that yes a couple of things um he was the authority figure he was dad he was the boss of everybody he'd say to us when we were kids i'm the king and you're nothing That was, we knew our place. You did not question his judgment. Mom didn't either. Nobody ever did. So that was back in the lizard brain telling me, you don't talk like that to this person. Even though he was in a Medicare lift chair in a robe with his hair almost gone and big block sunglasses on. And I could see with my eyes that he was dying, but I could not process it well enough to speak of it to him. And also, I thought he'd think I wanted him to die. Mm. And I think that, like, I, I could even hear him say to me, do you want to just want me to kick the bucket? I thought he'd think I didn't want him to live anymore and just, okay, let's put you in hospice. So those you, were two things. Well, you know, I feel like when one person feels a certain way, a lot of people feel that way. And I think, has it, did it change how you presented this hospice benefit moving forward after you had this experience or were you still in that specific job? No, I, well, yeah, I'm, I, I'm not in the job anymore, but when I go out and talk to groups, 
I say, I, I regret that I didn't mention it to them. And if he would have said, look, I don't want to go in hospice. I could, I'm going to fight this. I would have helped him fight it. Sure. Patient choice. And especially the king, the father, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, you, you do realize some of those very simple conversations end up being a magnifier of, of someone trying to advocate for their, the, themselves. Um, and if you're not in this background and you haven't had health care, you, you don't see it. But what, what's interesting is that you did see it and you still had a hard time. And I think that's very, very relevant to a lot of experiences. So let's talk about your personal experience with hospice. Let's give, let's give a little meat around the bones of what your family, family dynamics were and how this evolved and, and really became a huge healing process um, for, for you and your, your father and your family. Well, yeah, uh, I would like to go back to the time when Dr. Archer came in and talked to us with hospice. Sure. And that was the evening after I had spoken with him on the phone and mom said, okay. And he came into the room. Dr. Archer was, I just love him. He was such a wonderful doctor. He came in. He said, Mr. Valley, how are you feeling? Dad said, I feel like hell. I'm sick. I can't, I'm just so sick. He, he really couldn't, they were talking about putting a stomach tube in. So they, Dr. Archer talked with him for a few moments about how sick he was. And then he said, Tell me, tell me before you go on is what, what was your father's diagnosis? Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He was given four weeks to live without treatment. He had just completed the third week of radiation and was near death. The radiation was killing him because he couldn't eat or drink. Gotcha. So, so what, Dr. Ar yeah, go ahead. Yeah, doc, so Dr. Archer said, Mr. Valley, and I told Dr. Archer, my dad's a plain talking man. Don't sugarcoat it. Tell him. So he said, Mr. Valley, we consider guys like you terminal. And I just, at that moment, you know, the world stops revolving and I felt like the worst daughter in the world. Look what I did. I encouraged this doctor to say this to my father. And then there was quiet for a while. And then my dad uh, said, thank you, Dr. Archer. I've had a good long life and I'm grateful. And it was the heavens literally opened the relief, it just flooded into the room. Everybody felt relieved because he, he accepted that he was dying and he was ready to go home. He was ready. He didn't want to have any more radiation. And the fact that he said he was grateful is remarkable to me, that he would think to say, I'm grateful at that moment. And he was near blind from a vision, vision problem he had called rotatory nystagmus. So he put his hands up. He was trying to find Dr. Archer's hands to shake his hand. I mean, when I describe that moment, it still, it still chokes me up. And my, sure. mother and, I were, my mother and I were standing together at the bed, end of the bed. And then Dr. Archer walked out the room and I had already booked the hospice nurse to come for the next day. But the relief, there was just incredible relief. Yeah. Was there any conversation after Dr. Archer left between you, your mom and your father? Not too much. I, we were all just shell-shocked. We were so emotionally 
I mean, we were a Midwestern family. I mean, this to witness this much emotion, we couldn't stand it. <laughs> so my mom and I went back to the retirement home and and she had cherry pie and I had a piece of chocolate cake and we calmed down. And, and he didn't really want to talk. I mean, we all just needed to take some time and, and figure this out. And the next morning, hospice nurse walks in. Mr. Valley, I'm here to talk to you about the rest of your life. And it, everybody was, we were happy. Mm. We weren't pretending. We weren't pretending he was going to get better or encouraging him to get better. We had accepted it and we were moving forward. How was that? And and talk to me a little bit about when hospice came in. What was that like as a daughter? And I mean, were your other siblings involved? And and how did how did how did that process go? And and tell tell us a little bit about how long your father was on hospice because I know that so many come in so late. Um, so yeah, tell me about your hospice experience. Yeah, that's another message I send is choose hospice sooner rather than later. And, and he lived uh, 29 days. He died 29 days after he entered the hospice program. Well, what the hospice nurse told me what to do, she said, okay, now you have to go get the hospital bed, get the pharmaceutical straightened out, lots and lots of tasks that the family, that's another thing, the family has to get everything ready for the loved one to come home. And you're caring for a critically ill person. I had to have an oxygen concentrator, a suction machine, because he was choking. So I did all that. My sister was, uh, this was, they lived in Prescott, Arizona. My sister lived in Scottsdale and she was a huge help to me. We were a tag team. We worked together. And so she got on the phone and made a lot of phone calls to help things happen. Two of his children had not spoken to him for a decade. So we didn't really consult with them. She kept them apprised of what was going on, but not too much there. And then my younger brother, was having a lot of difficulties. He wasn't able to come, but he had written this just testimonial every parent would love to have. Mm. He wrote a letter to my dad because, you know, we're not emotional people, but he wrote, but he was a very good writer and he wrote this letter. And so that's how all the siblings participated. It was mainly me and my sister that made, that made the hospice happen. And then the, after I got the house ready, that took a couple of days and then he came home in the medicab. Uh, they brought him in in the wheelchair, put him in the bed in the bedroom, hospital bed, and left. And then I was on my own with the hospice. The, the physician is done at that point, and you're now with the hospice personnel. And they were living in a retirement community, which was a godsend to us because the food was prepared in the kitchen. They pureed because he couldn't eat, and um, we so we had staff there. In case something happened, the assisted living wing had a pharmaceutical uh, service, so all of their meds were delivered. So a lot of things happened that they were in a retirement home that was helpful. So what happened the first few days that he was in hospice, he got better. He felt great. He was giddy when he got home. He was just Why? looking around. Why was he feeling better? Talk to me about that. Well, when they stopped the radiation the swelling in his throat went down within a couple of days. He only had the pureed food uh, for a couple of days. And then he could eat, you know, ice cream. He loved ice cream and he got to have martinis. I love it. Yeah. I love it. I would have loved your father. So we, yeah, we hired, yeah, we hired some personal, some um, custodial care 
workers because we knew mom wasn't going to be able to take care of him either physically or any other way. And the caregivers took care of her too. Bless their hearts. They kept well, do you company. think that's a big misconception that hospice is there 24 hours a day instead of being on call via phone? Because I, I hear a lot of people saying, well, I got hospice, but they're, they, they weren't here 24 hours a day. And I think that's the bis- biggest myth that, that, yes, you have you know staff that come in and visit and make sure pain control is under control. But, but the, really, you, the family, becomes that caregiver for 24 hours a day. Exactly. A lot of people, and then they say, well, if I'm not having a caregiver there, I can't do it. You know, but that's that they do have home health aides that come up to three, three days a week, three times a week. And I have a a fact sheet that I give out at my talks that gives all that information, what hospice covers. But as I mentioned a couple of times, we were not the kind of family would take our dad to the toilet, you know, so, and they had enough money to to hire people and my sister found a wonderful agency oh, great. The, the the women were just perfect and a lot of families say well we can't afford that or some families say they want to provide that care I've talked to many people that say I wanted to give that personal care the bathing and even the toileting to their parent so it, we did it our way but it there that, are I other like ways. There are it. other ways to take care of that. Yes, sure. friends, family, you know, things like that that people can take care of it. Well, what were the? What was it like? You you said your dad was uh, in hospice for twenty nine days. What were you observing throughout those twenty nine days? Because you know, you now are aware that your father is on hospice. You're not doing curative treatment. He's giddy, looking around, finally can eat again. And, and you feel, I don't know, I, I, would, I would feel this, this like big thing, you know, barrier off my, my heart that you actually can enjoy him, but you know that he is dying. So what was that like for you and your sister and your mom? Uh, both, both my sister and I... He, he, what we felt like was he trusted us. He thought of us as adults. He he opened up his financial dealings to me. The the day after he got home from hospice, he said, "Go get my computer. I want to look at my books." You know, like he, <laughs> he, and he and he would never mention anything about money to me. And and on other levels, just a personal relationship with him. I had a new father. He mm. he was a man who carried the burden of a family and a wife for, for 80 years. And now he just relaxed. He was relaxed. He didn't have to take care of stuff anymore. People were taking care of him. And I always love to say with the home health aides, he called the woman that brought his breakfast muffin lady and the woman that brought his lunch soup lady and the home health aide that took him to the bathroom pee lady. He would, (laughs) he was cracking jokes. He was, a different man because he had, he just said, I'm going to go with this. Now he had had a near death experience when he was 19. And he told me, I don't fear death because he had kind of gone near death experience kind of thing. So I don't think he was worried about leaving my mother behind. He had told one of the home health aides and she put it in the log. 
but he he was he was just delightful. And mm. one of the home health aides wrote a letter after he died, and she described how hard it is to take care of older men. You know, they fight, they fight, the, they don't want to, the help, and they want to boss people around. They don't give up that veneer. And she said, your dad was a gentleman, just a gentleman. They fell in love with him. So he he had those few weeks of his life where he was just ready to walk into the next the next experience. It was amazing. Do you feel like you got to know a side of your father um, that you've never seen because of hospice and the caregivers taking on that care that you could remain the daughter? Yes. I was a friend. Mm. You know, I, I became, I became an, uh, and he was very sexist guy, you know, the, the age, that age. <laughs> and, and I felt he thought, thought of me as a more full human being, not oh, just his wow. daughter. <laughs> yeah. That, he just, he just, he, I don't, it's hard to describe how he changed. And we, we, he had a family ring that he wanted to give to um, his oldest grandson. So, that was very emotional for us when he took that ring off because he'd had it on his whole life. So we went through some very tender, not just, you know, financial things. We, and we returned his car, his rental car down to Phoenix. And he had his affairs in order when he passed. Did that surprise you? Yes, because, and I, and what I like to say to people is, if he'd had that third, fourth week of radiation, he would have died in the ICU. None of that would have happened. Mm-hmm. You know, why do you feel that it's so hard for us human beings to let go um, of those we love? Even even stopping treatment. You know, because I, I'm hearing your story and, and sometimes I'm thinking, did your father do the treatment for you? not necessarily for him because he, you know, you, you, you ponder these things because he was so accepting of it. What, what do you think? I think that when he, see, he had had colon cancer two years before this non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and he had recovered from it pretty well, but they gave him chemo. And so he never really felt good again. So I think when he got this second cancer with that short prognosis, he was more easily uh, accepting that he was dying than if he had been in the pink of health. And then all of a sudden sounds like maybe that's what your experience was. Mm. He had been, he had been declining. And I think he just did what the doctor said. The doctor said, okay, you need chemo. So he took chemo. Do you feel that's like a pattern? I mean, here's the doctor suggesting chemotherapy and not even saying, hey, there's an, you don't have to do this. You, there is another way to do this. Um, be, and I, I do feel even with my own parents, you know, it is, it is treatment focused, not, ne- not necessarily, hey, here are the options. Here are the outcomes of those options and what best fits you. Let's talk about that. Doctors don't do that <laughs> and they don't do it. And I've done, I've, you know, I've read some, uh, Tool Gawande's book. Sure, Being mortal. mortal. He's a doctor. He's, both his parents are doctors and they didn't get through this process very well. <laughs> right. The story of his dad. 
And then there's been, you know, Medicare now pays for end of life discussions. And there was a study done after of doctors after that law was passed. And a lot of them don't access that benefit. And a lot of, and the doctors say, we don't know if it's time for hospice or not. They don't know when that person's going to die. And the rabbi who did my foreword, uh, Rabbi Arthur Rosenberg, his quote, I put it on the back of the book, and it's what Dr. Archer said, it's best when the family decides. This is a family decision. I know my my mother was just killing my mother to see my dad suffering, the choking and the gagging. He was suffering. And there, and it just, why? Why, why, why continue the suffering when you know nobody wants to admit it's not going to cure the cancer? And you have to say, use your common sense, look before your eyes. And it's so hard when your heart is, is you know, it, the heart takes over and you become emotional. And then, you know, and I think this is really what my message is too, is please plan and do events, care planning and your directives prior to a medical event. Because once that medical event happens, a serious illness happens, suddenly you're thinking with your heart and emotions versus really what is the best thing I want for myself as well as what does my father want? Because it's really not me projecting what I want for my father. It's my father telling me what he wants. And, and I think that's, I think that's very important to recognize that. Now you, you did write a book. I mentioned it earlier and I've been reading it. Thank you for sending me the copy and <laughs> signing it. I love, I only keep signed copies. So I was so happy you signed okay. it for me. Um, it's going to go on my shelf. Loving Choices, Peaceful Passing, Why My Family Chose Hospice. Why that title? Oh, I went through in 15 years, I went through so many titles. <laughs> one of my one of my titles was Martinis and Ice Cream. Oh, I like that one. And then <laughs> I did too. But then my friend said, Kathleen, you're writing a serious book. You can't give a joke title. <laughs> so I, ha I had tons of titles. But what it is, is it's a loving choice. It's a choice that is a loving choice to make because you don't want your, we, we loved our father and we didn't want to watch him suffer anymore. And as a result, he passed peacefully. So one leads to the other. And then I put that tagline on why my family chose hospice because this is written from a personal family member point of view. So, oh, she, her family did it. Maybe my family can do it. Oh, I love that. I really love that. Now, throughout this whole process, did this change your opinion about end of life and the and hospice itself? Oh, yes. Yeah. Tell me a little much. bit about that. Well, 30% of Medicare budget goes to the last month of life. And I know a lot of these little old people are in there getting all kinds of last ditch efforts to save them. And it, it, it's financially costly and it's suffering, human suffering. It's costly. But I even hesitate to mention that because people will think, oh, she just wants to save Medicare a few bucks. Yeah. I mean, but it's it, it need, I think doctors need to be educated and, and your podcast, my book, just talking. I always thought I'd sell my book word to word from one family to another. And if there wasn't such tight security in hospitals these days, I'd go drop some off. Good for in the you. Waiting 
in the Good waiting room with that. I did get um, some into nursing homes where I offered to give them to people in nursing homes just to uh, have it. Well, and you know, people have such a hard time with with coming to terms um, with their with our own mortality. It's still in the closet, and I want to normalize this. Um, conversation. And I think but by having a personal experience like you and your family had, it, sh- it must impact how you are going to look at your own end of life. So after your father passed, and how did this affect your conversations with your family? Um, did Do you have advanced care planning? And have you started talking about your own mortality with, with your immediate family? Yeah, we have um, the we we filled out both the advanced care directive and five wishes. Nice, both of them. And then now people are starting to tape record their advanced wishes. And I have a friend who's eighty four, and she and her husband have told each other have a friend they designated to make the decision because they know their daughters probably won't. So I think people are getting a little more creative in thinking about this. But my daughter brags about it. She says, my parents have their will, their trust, their advanced directives. Mom wrote a book. I'm good. <laughs> but you know what? It's it, it takes so much burden off children not guessing what you might want. And then if you don't have that written down and have conversations about it, I believe those who are making some of those decisions always wonder if they made the right decision. And and I I think there's a lot of confusion when it comes to healthcare power of attorney or proxy or agent or whatever you call that, because it really, you don't have any decisions to be made. You're upholding and you're acting as that person. And it's really important to understand that. Now, what do you hope um, when people read your book, what do you hope they walk away with? I hope they walk away with hope that choosing hospice can give them wonderful experiences with their loved one. They don't have to watch their loved one suffer to death because that's what they do now. They suffer to death. They just keep true. They usually die in the hospital. 80% of Americans die in a hospital or nursing home, usually alone with continue, you know, continuing to try to cure them. I think maybe using the word, maybe we should stop curative care and start comfort care instead of saying aggressive treatment to hospice. Maybe it's time to consider comfort care. And palliative care is getting coming into its own as well. And you don't have to be terminally ill to get palliative care. So more education on that, I think, will help. Well, and I think your personal story is going to open many doors for many other families. And I I do think that's one of your goals is, and I, you know, even listening to the story this morning, it really, I believe, and and please correct me if if I'm assuming certain things, but I believe hospice gave you the bridge to get to know a different side of your father. And I think that's absolutely beautiful. And, it did. And hospice was that factor. Um, and I think that I don't want to I don't want individuals to see hospice um as as giving up or anything like that. Because your father would have died no matter what. Mm-hmm. 
you know, whether he was still taking treatment in the hospital or he was home comfortable and was able to communicate with you guys. Um, I, uh, I love your book. I love your family. <laughs> I love that you had the opportunity to see a different side. Where can people find your book? Uh, anywhere books are sold online. And that's, and that's even Amazon and Barnes and Nobles, anywhere. Anywhere, anywhere. And here in Los Angeles, uh, it's at Vroman's Bookstore in Pasadena. Oh, I love Pasadena. Yeah, so, yeah. but you also, you know, I know we're still, we're coping with this, uh, I'm hoping, on the edge of the end of this pandemic. And and once things lift, you you are welcome. You're interested in telling your story and having speaking engagements. Oh, yes. When, when we get back to what is now our new normal, I should say. Um, so you're open to that. So how do people find you? Uh, my website is valleyview.com, V-A-L-L-E-E, view, V-I-E-W.com. I've got videos on there talking about certain topics having to do with hospice so they can hear me talking about it. Well, you know, there's not many people that become a huge uh, cheerleader for hospice unless you're working in that field. And here you are with a personal story. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you advocating for end-of-life choices, advocating for hospice specifically, and and thank you so much for that. Um, we need more people like you out there. Um, and I am so grateful um, to have met your your father and your family through your words. Um, thank you for joining us today and thank you for sharing our story. And you know, just know this, Kathleen, you are, you are changing how people live and die just by telling your story. And that to me is, uh, makes you a very special person to me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer. This podcast is produced by Jason Andre with Seven Season Films. If you're interested in telling your story via podcast, look him up. You can find him at sevenseasonfilms.com.